Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey, all you avid listeners out there, this is Dr. John. And if you enjoy what you're hearing on these joint podcasts with me and my fiance, Jory Rose, please know that we are offering a week-long retreat in Costa Rica in April of 2023 at one of the top resorts in the country where the body workers are next level and you will learn from myself and Jory how to be in better relationship to yourself, to your loved one, and to everyone else. This is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Please feel free to check out the podcast notes for more links, details, and info. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of The Evolved Caveman, and it is my great pleasure to have back with me again, John Sean Doyle. And Sean was my third guest when I just started out. He was kind enough to join me when this was just nothing. Now it's three years later, and I'm not sure it's a big thing, but you know, it's, it's a bigger thing. And in any case, Sean is a poet and lawyer, and he taught psychology at North Carolina State University for almost a decade. He's worked on matters of happiness, meaning, and resilience with a wide range of individuals and groups, including, including Army drill sergeants, federal appellate judges, Buddhist monks, and foreign governments. He has been called the poetic voice of positive psychology, and his essays and stories are invitations to inject more hope, affection, and meaning into the world. And I don't actually, do you have a more recent book? Because I have the most recent book is Mud and Dreams. That's the, yeah, that's the most recent one. There's okay. one in progress. It, it's, it won't be out for another year or so, but it's, um, there's one on the way. So, so I just wanted to check and make sure there wasn't anything new in the past three years. Um, but Sean is this great combination of, he's someone that's in touch with his emotions and his intellectual side as evidenced by being a poet and a lawyer. So welcome, Sean. Great to see you again. Well, thank you. And thank you for the very generous introductions. <laughs> Absolutely. So today we are talking about men's friendships. Sean approached me a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago and said, Hey, this would be a great topic for your podcast. And I was like, absolutely. So I looked up some recent statistics and, you know, the headline is American men suffer a friendship recession. And there was a 2021 survey by the survey center on American life and found that the social landscape is far less favorable than it once was. Because over the past three decades, the number of close friends Americans have has plummeted. And this friendship recession is particularly bad for men. The percentage of men with at least six close friendships fell by half since 1990, going from 55 to 27%. So about one in four. The study also found that the percentage of men without any close friends jumped from 3% to 15%, a five-fold increase. So it seems that single men fare the worst. One in five American men who are unmarried and not in a romantic relationship report not having any close friends. Even men with a couple of close friends are not in great shape because when it comes to our social circles, size matters. There's got to be a dick joke in there. But anyway, Americans with one close friend are not any less lonely or isolated than those without any close friends. And those with a couple of close friends are only modestly better off. For those with three or fewer close friends, loneliness and isolation are fairly common experiences. And we know we have an epidemic of loneliness among men in the U.S. The bad news doesn't end there, though. Not only do men have smaller friendship circles, they report being less emotionally connected to the friends that they do have. Let's see what else. Americans who receive regular emotional support from their friends are far less likely to report feeling anxious or alone than those who do not. So then we get into some of the whys, which Sean and I will touch on. But one common explanation for why men are less able to develop and maintain close friendships is my favorite, the man box. The traditional norms of masculinity make the task of building and sustaining friendships more difficult. Compared to women, men feel less comfortable sharing their feelings, being vulnerable, or seeking emotional support from their friends. But the story is a little bit more complicated than this because younger men, who are far more likely to reject traditional norms of masculinity, struggle the most with developing enduring social bonds. 
Another explanation may be that women are more likely to put in the work. I think women are socialized to, to do better in relationship. They're encouraged from a young age. We are not. Um, men also tend to reach out to friends at infrequent intervals. And some of the other causes I was brainstorming are friends moving away, divorce, struggles with asking for help, lower marriage rates, and increases in remote and hybrid work. And one more, losing oneself in a romantic relationship. So that's kind of the background. Um, now let's get into the particulars and maybe a little bit of our lives about how our friendships have ebbed and flowed over the years. So let me allow you to jump in. Yeah, no, thank you. And that, uh, thank you for the, the background too. That's some tremendous um, information. Um, it's It's been a while since I went back and read any of the studies or anything else. The way this topic came front of mind for me is there's a, a men's group that I'm a part of. Um, I'm, I live in North Carolina. Uh, the group is is started here, but it's all over the country um, where guys get together in the morning to work out. And we meet in public parks and it's volunteer led and anybody can anybody can join. It's free. Um, the first day you show up, they give you a goofy nickname, you know, so it's kind of like a uh, fraternity in that sense. Um, but then it's people show up for the workout, but then you're making uh, connections with other people that you might go out grab beers with or go do things with. And, you know, sometimes people do Bible studies or whatever, you know, other interests they have. And um, it was started by a couple of guys that were noticing um, that their friends were the uh, basically the dads of their kids' friends. And then the mm -hmm. kids would go to different schools or whatever else, and you lose your friend. You don't you don't have yeah. those contacts anymore. And so through this group, I've been able to meet people in different professions, different age groups, different demographics, um, really making my personal network a whole lot more rich. Um, but then even with this group, this um, I have some people I consider very, very close through it. Uh, there are some people who really struggled over, especially the last couple of years. Yeah. And we there were a couple of tragedies. And so a bunch of us were talking about, well, what can we do to help? You know, even we, and we've already got a connection with one another, but what can we do to deepen it? What can we do to move it kind of past the kind of beer in a football game Somebody that you feel like if you're going through something that you can reach out and, and pick up a, a phone and call. Um, and so we've started within our own little group thinking about things and talking about things. And that's where I wanted to, to sit down with you and, and uh, just bounce some ideas off and, and see um, what guys especially can do to enhance those, those types of relationships. Yeah, I think it's a great question and very relevant because we know that, you know, things like loneliness can lead to addiction, deaths of despair. Um, and, you know, one of the, I had an interesting experience um, after I got divorced. And after I got divorced, I found that I lost all my male friends that were like couple friends. And I also realized that of those friendships, not one of them really had a whole lot of depth. They were all very surface. They were, you know, traditional masculine, traditional masculine. They were concerned with creating wealth. Um, and, you know, maybe we could talk about sports and drink. Um, but I remember after I got divorced, I reached out to an old friend of mine from college that I hadn't talked to in some time, um, six, seven years, perhaps. It, it had been a while. And we went out to lunch and he said, like, John, how come you didn't pick up the phone? And I was a little bit taken aback and a little bit annoyed by the comment because my response was, well, you realize the phone works both ways, right? And, and so I, I think there's this interesting dynamic where we're reluctant to reach out for help. We're reluctant to call and say, hey, can I just, you know, Ben? Because I think one of the things we're worried about is something like that. No. Is they're going to be angry or annoyed that we haven't reached out. 
And to me, that is complete and utter bullshit. Because the phone does ring both ways. Either one of you can pick it up and call. So for someone to say, why didn't you call? I, like, I don't have a whole lot of patience for that. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, one of the one of the horrible things about depression is that it kills every um, uh, motivation. It kills everything that you need to do to get better. You don't feel like exercising. You don't feel like going out and connecting with people. You don't Um, feel worthy of reaching out and asking for help. Right. And so if you're, you know, if you're struggling through anything, that it's a hard effort to reach out to one to identify who you can reach out to. Maybe we've been burned before when we've reached out to folks. Um, one thing I, that I've started as I've been thinking about this stuff a couple of years ago, a friend had um, sent me uh, an obituary of somebody that he knew who um, in the obituary, you know, usually uh, if there's some sort of tragedy in the death, they don't mention in the obituary. It's just, um, you know, very generic. This one talked about his alcoholism and how it really tore up his life. And it was, it was a very powerful thing that his family did by doing that and a very, um, noble and helpful thing. But so this one guy reached out. He sent me that obituary and I do talks with people on alcohol abuse and things like that all the time. I mean, so I, I just assumed that that was um, why he was sending it to me. Um, a couple of years later, he ended up checking into rehab himself. Um, and what I, um, I've actually reached out to him, I haven't connected directly with him yet. I, I'm wondering if that was him reaching out to me, that in a very soft, safe, subtle way, that it's, you know, sending this over and that I just missed it. I mean, so here's, you know, I, I think I'm fairly attentive to this stuff. And yet we still can miss those types of outreaches when they, when they happen. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which I think is a, a lesson both for, for us as receivers, but then us as reaching out too. Yeah. That if I, if I do that, if I make a small bid for connection and somebody misses it, it's really easy not to reach out again or to make that yeah. your only person you reach out to. So we got to do it a bunch of times, different people. Well, and one of the things that I think enters into this is I think that fish out of water feeling, right? That when I was a kid, sixth grade, I used to think I was the only boy who felt things deeply. And I felt like a fish out of water my whole, I don't know, my whole life might be overstating it for, for many years. And then I started working with men. And in working with men, I would reveal that to them. And they would say, yeah, me too. And it always surprised me because I think I would have guessed 95% of the hundreds of men I've worked with over 20 years are deeply emotionally sensitive also. Except we're all just trying to hide it. And so, you know, one of the things I try and do is be transparent in public about how I feel and sometimes the struggles that I go through. Um, I remember I had a radio show back in 2005. I had the thought of, you know what, I've got to go out there and share with people that part of my makeup is depression and part of it is some social anxiety. And I was terrified to do that. And after I did it, nothing happened. A few people were supportive, but I was worried about, you know, getting called names or being put down. And so I've, I've tried to be more authentic and vulnerable in some public spaces. Like I I just dealt with a depressive episode for about really, it was kind of off and on for like four months. And what I found out is it was actually due to, um, if I look at my depression as a messenger or an informant, it was telling me, Hey, there's something wrong with your romantic relationship. You need to figure this out. And I did, It, it took me a few months, but I finally did. And and it went away. But when I'm in the middle of that, it's really hard to reach out to anybody. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the thing with that too is, I mean, we are we are all have our sensitivities and our um, the things we're concerned about and the images that we want to uphold and whatever. But is in in my experience, as soon as you let that the vulnerable side out, people are more willing to then open up with you. 
it's then easier to reach out to that person if we need something. I mean, it's a lot of times the vulnerability, I think, accelerates the relationship. Yes. Um, well, and, and think, and I've told that to a lot of people that I think we are more bonded when we share our shit, so to speak, than when we share our achievements. And there's a positive psych introduction or a positive psych exercise that has to do with, you know, introduce yourself at your very best or tell a story about yourself at your very best. And I I remember doing that in a a group of psychologists, a class I was teaching and they, the the stories typically started out with them in the gutter and in some regard in their life, you know, divorce or anger or alcohol or whatever it was and them at their best. And there was a story arc of them overcoming that difficulty. And this was them at their very best and hearing the full story arc I mean, like, I can't even explain. There was a palpable feeling of connection in the room after that versus if I just say, you know, I'm John Schinner, or I have a PhD from Cal and I wrote a book and blah, 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 blah. People are like, fuck you. <laughs> Maybe that's a little strong, but it, it doesn't, right. it just doesn't connect us. Right. It, it, I think it, it serves to drive wedges. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've done the positive uh, introduction exercise Every year with my students at state, I've done it with corporate groups. And what I would, what I'd find with it is a lot of times I'd tell the students beforehand we were going to do it and to think about it. And a lot of times, That's a good they idea, would, by the way, because some, yeah. some people are like, uh, I don't know what you say. <laughs> well, a lot of times they would come with two stories. So one wow. really safe one mm-hmm. and then one that, that allows them to be vulnerable. And the second, well, I've even had people, they share the safe one, someone else goes vulnerable, then the other person's like, can I, can I tell a different story instead? You know, <laughs> can I tell a better story? But it, it, it bonds the class a whole lot faster than just, I'm Sean, I'm a sophomore, I'm a philosophy major or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it really draws people together. Um, so the other thing that you mentioned earlier was this idea of men's groups. And... To me, I mean, I'm, I'm Jed Diamond's one of my friends. He's written, you might be familiar with him. He's written like, I don't know, 17 books on men's issues. And in one of this, one of his books, it's 12 Rules for a Good Man. The first one in there is get into a men's group. And I just started a men's group recently. And, and, and I'm running the group. And it's still like manna from heaven. It, it restores my soul. Because it's it's deep, meaningful conversations, connection, it's vulnerability, it's guys supporting each other. And it it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and what my experience with it, so I've got the the bigger one that starts with the exercise, but then that's spun off into a um a group that we meet once a month each uh, start off each session talking about anything that is on your mind and they interfere with your ability to kind of interact and connect. And then we spend time with people around whatever that the stuff is. And then there's always one topic that somebody leads, but um, we've, we tried that several different times, uh, like different formats. And it, it took a while to kind of settle in for something that worked for this particular group. I mean, people cycle in and out. But now we have a pretty solid group, and I—it's a um, one of the, those must dos on my calendar that I'll push other stuff aside because I don't—I don't want to miss it. Um, yeah. And the other thing that I've done recently, because I've realized that this issue of men's friendship is so large and so damaging—I um, guess the shortage of men's friendships—is I started thinking about my male clients, my adult male clients right now. And I probably have, I don't know, 20 to 25. And I, I realized that this was a serious issue for several of them and a lesser issue for most of them. And I thought, you know, that if the rules aren't working for you, break the rules. And the rule that I grew up with that I was trained in was, you know, you see one person at a time and you don't break that therapeutic box, so to speak. And I thought, well, that rule isn't working for any of us. And what if we change the rules? And so I started asking each of my clients, you know, hey, I'm thinking of starting this men's dinner once a month with no other agenda than connection. 
And you're responsible for paying for your dinner, your drinks, and that's it. There's no cost. And every one of them said, I'm in. Now, you know, some show up, some don't, depending on the month, but it's the same thing, right? It's this real, meaningful, deep connection with other men. And so what what about that? works i mean because they'll be i'll go out and grab beers with friends and it's it's all very surfacy and that stuff's good too i mean we don't yeah. you don't want everything to be super super intense true but, true but we need we need those really strong bonds too so how do you especially for for guys that don't have the strong bonds how do you how do you move from there's these guys i like to be social with to you know what there's some guys i know that i, I can really count on i, I think Partly because I've trained them, I've given them tools, okay. I've shared some of my vulnerabilities with them, which gives them permission to do the same with me. And also when I brought up the idea, I said, look, I'm starting this monthly men's dinner with men that I like, respect, and trust. And if they don't meet that criteria, they're not invited. And and so I think it gave people a sense of confidence, a sense of comfort, a sense of safety. And I think they could extend a little bit more trust to each other. Um, And I mean, I left the last one a couple weeks ago and I've never felt more proud and more grateful about the work I do and the growth of some of my clients. Because one of my clients shared his whole story of addiction, which is like, I've seen him for 11 years, which is not normal for me, but like this guy was put in a medically induced coma for two days to save his life because his liver was failing at 25. And I've walked through him with all this. And for him to share, he's been he's sober four years now, for him to share this with a group of men, and I know in the back of my mind that there's some social anxiety there, I was so damn proud of him. And I just walked away on a cloud. So that's, I mean, those are some of the things that I think might enter into that. Yeah, it's part of the framing. Um, and I think that's worked with, that's one of the things that's, I mean, we, I'm not training people on how to do anything, but it's, but we've, we do, it's people self-selecting for the group, but it's also when other people are being vulnerable, it it makes that okay. And it, it, it gives makes permission it, to others. Yeah. yeah, it makes it feel like, oh, well, maybe I'm not the only one, like I've always thought my entire life. Yeah. Um, and especially when they see, I mean, the, the rest of the group being supportive and helpful and and just there for them. Um, I think that that has helped quite a bit. And, you know, yeah, and I think I think you're absolutely right. Seeing people, seeing other men support, you know, when someone has shared a a vulnerable story, you, I think you have this internal dialogue of, Oh, well I could do something like that. Cause I know these guys are going to be supportive because I think the fear is maybe we're going to be mocked or, you know, any of the insults that we got growing up. Um, but the, the other thing that I, I've tried to train my clients on is to take the spotlight of attention off of yourself and put it onto others and tell yourself that you are an intensely curious person about other people's stories and get better at asking questions. And we go through kind of some questions to be able to ask. But the idea is to come up with four or five questions that elicit, a, you'll like this, that elicit a positive emotional response because you're steering the, the conversation into a positive direction. They're, the recipient of the question is going to feel a positive emotion. like what's the best concert you've ever been to? What's the, what's your most favorite vacation or place in the world? When you pull up that memory, you have a positive emotional response. And I think that gets associated with the person who's asked the question. Oh, that's, that's interesting. That's, that fills in some blanks for me in my head where one thing that I've, I've experimented with and it's worked really well, but I didn't, I didn't connect all the dots why it was working is, you know, if I, if I go to a, an event in the neighborhood or something and people typically ask, 
know, how are you and what do you do? Well, I'm fine. And, you know, my day job, I'm a lawyer. I mean, it's not, it's, I, I like my job as a lawyer, but that's not what excites me. And when people start talking, when it, when we get into the, the positive psychology work that I do or the writing, then I feel my energy changes. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I try to structure my questions or, you know, what, you know, what are you excited about? I love that, that you're one. Doing, or what, what are you looking forward to? About? What's yeah, new? And, what's exciting? Right. And then give them a chance to, to, I've, I've tried the positive introduction thing with strangers too. That one's a, hit and miss. It's like, tell me how to time at your best. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, but that's another piece that enters into this. I think, uh, God, there's so much that goes into this. I think it's a really important skill to train yourself to talk to strangers with the intention of creating some sort of positive, positive connection. And, and so it's kind of like your detective or an investigative reporter asking questions to see if you can get their energy level to perk up, see yeah. if you can figure out what they are passionate about. And this could be anyone from you know the Starbucks barista to the checker at the grocery store. But the, the cool thing is when you do this, you both win because you both walk away with a small positive emotional boost. And if you think about that as an accumulation over time of drops, drops of positive emotion in that bucket of positive emotions. If you do this three times a day, eh, you know, it's, it's nice, but whatever. Now, three times a day times five or six days of the week, and then multiply that out by a year and then multiply that out by 10 years, it changes your perception of the world. It changes your primal world belief, I would argue, in how safe or dangerous the world is and yeah. to what extent do you believe people are good or honest or trustworthy? Yeah. And that's a big deal. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. Are you familiar with Jerk Clifton? Uh, yeah, I've done an interview with him. I, yeah, that's the okay. primal world beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. No, when he's, research. Yeah, no, no, that's, yeah. He, um, he went through the same uh, graduate program I did. Yeah. Uh, and the map went, program. That's right. He did that. He went on for his PhD afterwards, and yeah, uh, yeah his his works tremendous and exciting. I think it's going to change the world. Honestly, I think yeah. it's because those primal world beliefs, from what he's found, seem to underlie our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions, which makes a lot of sense. If you you know think of you know to what extent on a one to a hundred scale do you see the world as safe versus dangerous? If I see the world as dangerous, if I see people as fundamentally dishonest or deceitful or manipulative, I have no reason to reach out to strangers. I have no reason to reach out to people. I'm going to guard myself against them. Well, and one thing that you, you said in there that that's really powerful about the the primal world beliefs too, is that we can change them. That if, that if we're, you know, if we're seeing the sparkle in people's eyes, when we talk to them, and we and that and it's you know increasing the sparkle in our eyes too because we're touching on stuff that they care about and that matters. Um, that ultimately that's going to change the way that we approach the world. And yeah. it's because um, I think a lot of times people just feel like, well, this is I see the world this way because that's the way it is, and it's you know. It, well, and, you know, every stop. every pessimist will tell you they're a realist. Um, they're right, right, right. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that's cool about those primal world beliefs is I really think they're kind of similar to mindsets in that for many people, I think you can change them like that. Once you become aware of them that, cause I know, by the way, I do his primal world beliefs are just about the world at large. I think there's an extension of that in terms of what do we believe about the world at large? What do we believe about people at large or in general? And what yeah. do we believe about self in general? And so if, if I become aware of a primal belief that I have that people are going to hurt me and people can't be trusted, I can make a conscious decision to say, okay, right now I'm at, a, I think 10% of the world, of people out there are trustworthy. And let me try it out just as an experiment. Let me move that up to 60% and just see how that works for me. And then 
it can give you permission to reach out to people in line or at this you know supermarket or wherever talk about you know oh my gosh your baby's so cute because everyone likes to talk about the babies um but it's it's trying to find that connection with people and i think you'll find once you do that people are generally good people are generally honest people are generally trying to do the right thing yeah and and thinking thinking more about the like how we build the relationship so we've got the um, the being vulnerable and kind of the deeper conversations. But but this is touching on too, just our everyday interactions. And that um, I think a lot about John Gottman's work with oh, yeah. um, marriages and the bids for connection yeah. that, you know, all day long, people are, they offer you a glass of water and they hold the door for you and they're doing, and it's it's really easy to just kind of ignore them, blow them off, turn away from it. Um, and what that is, it's, you know, and I don't necessarily care whether you're thirsty, but it's a, it's a, it's a small bid for connection. Yeah. And the more that we're turning toward those bids, it's like little deposits in the bank. So that over time, all of a sudden, when you do have, um, something that you're struggling with or something that you want to bounce off somebody, you feel like, you know what, I've you know, John's always been really positive and, and helpful with me. Let me let me give him a call. Yeah. Um, and by the way, you can always call. Oh well, thank you. Just I so appreciate you know. that. Um, and you're yeah, welcome I, to call me too. I mean, absolutely. Thank you. So. Um, and you know, John Gottman's work is second to none, and I, I love the, the just the concept of bids for attention is a big one because you know one of the things I talk about is relationships getting. Um, most relationships don't end because of a big transgression, like an affair. And, and I'm talking about romantic relationships, but you can broaden sure. this to friendships. They most most friendships or relationships end death by a thousand paper cuts, and those paper cuts are little, little tiny things, little resentments, little annoyances, being ignored, your bids for attention being rejected. Oh, yeah. And I think the the bids for attention idea is massive to me because it points out just how little these paper cuts can be. And so you make a bid for attention, like, hey, honey, did I tell you about, you know, the neighbors? Or, you know, you call up your friend and, you know, hey, did I tell you about, you know, my friend Bob? And for those that don't know, there's three ways to respond to bids for attention. There's positive, negative, and neutral. A positive is turning towards them. Like if I'm on my phone, I put my phone down, I give them my eye contact, I give them my ears. I'm giving them my attention letting them know that they are important to me. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Tell me what's going on. A neutral response is maybe I don't even hear them. Maybe I'm just lost in my phone reading the news and I don't respond at all. A negative response is, why are you interrupting me? Like, can't you see I'm busy? Right. And interestingly, the negative responses are the most damaging. Yeah. um, Because you may not be aware of them and you can't repair that. But I think if you look at that and consider just how little these paper cuts can be. And the, it's the accumulation of those over time that I think change people's perception of the other from all good to all or mostly bad. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I thought was um, really helpful with that was the, when turning toward a bid, you know, sometimes it feels like, geez, does that mean I have to say yes every time somebody asks me out to lunch? It, it, it doesn't. It's like, Oh, I'm sorry, I can't right now, but you know, like next week's looking better or whatever, you know, whatever. Just it's a it's a positive turn towards right. them. It doesn't have the content of it that doesn't have to. Yeah, I would really love to. I can't now. Or I mean, like, let's say I'm working on my computer and writing, and my daughter comes in and says, Hey Dad, can I talk to you? I mean, if I I can put a pin in it so I can say, you know what, honey, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Give me 10 minutes and I'll be done with this and then I'll check in with you. A really uh, a funny story about John Gottman. I he went to um, to I was going back to an event at at Penn uh, that he was coming to speak to speak there. I'd read some of his papers, but never any of his books. So I went to the local library and checked out every book by him. I didn't I didn't know which ones I would resonate. So you are such a geek, Sean. I love well, I I am. Uh, <laughs> I didn't read all of them, but, but I I, I see that with great affection. <laughs> I walked in with a stack of, I don't know, 12 or 13 books, you know, the so many keys to making marriages work and, you know, all this other stuff. 
this shows my low social intelligence because my wife sees me walk in with this stack of marriage self-help books. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> you have something okay? to tell me? Yeah, everything okay? <laughs> I'm like, no, oh, no, there's this guy. He's going to be speaking, blah, blah, blah. And then she comes back later. Are you sure? It's like, no. Since then, I've read a couple. She's read a couple. So we'll even play with that. It's like, oh, you're turning yeah. against my bit. You know, and yeah. And laugh about it. Yeah. And, and one of the things I've found recently, and I've mentioned this on the show before, is that I was having trouble with my fiance when we would get into disagreements and I would get emotionally flooded. I had a really hard time. You know, you can either turn away from the relationship or turn towards your partner. And I was having a really hard time turning towards in those moments of conflict. Um, and, and so once I became aware of that, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's some work I need to, to do. Yeah. And that's what I think is interesting about these awarenesses is once you become aware of it, you know, you can't unring the bell. And so I guess you have an option, but to me, I'm always pursuing growth. I personal growth is kind of a, a high value of mine. And and so I think it's it can be exciting. Sometimes it can be a pain in the ass too, but uncomfortable, yeah. but yeah. still worthy. Well, and I think a lot of us we have notions that um, you know, friendships should just happen organically. It or love is any, enough. Yeah, a romantic it, relationship. Right, and it's you know it shouldn't take any work. Uh, I yeah. shouldn't have to tell you what I'm thinking. You should I just have know. To learn anything. Yeah, and it's um, you know anything that we want to be good at and successful in in our lives takes work. It can be fun, but it takes a deliberate choice, and it takes being paying attention and some work. When and you know one of these things going back to that whole man box idea and how we're socialized as men. I think one of the big rules about what it means to be a real man is one of the things that really gets in our way in terms of friendships. And that is be self-reliant. The other one is compete. And, mm. you know, I, I think I've talked to a lot of men who are hyper competitive because they were athletic, you know, back in the day. They never really learned to shift gears out of it. They don't realize that hyper-competitiveness is not great when you're in an argument with your wife, for example, or your partner. Um, but the be self-reliant one is, that's huge in our culture. And the idea is deal with it on your own. Um, you're a rock, you're an island, you're an army of one. You are not supposed to reach out for help. And, and I think that's deeply ingrained in us. And I think that's one of the things we have to get past in order to further develop some of these friendships. Yeah. And I know that's that's something I'm very conscious of that I'm um is one of my sticking points that I'll um I mean shoot my my two job well you're you're a psychologist <laughs> um and I'm a my day job I'm a lawyer and I'm got a background in psychology. Both those jobs are about fixing other people's problems and if I don't have my stuff together, what's that say about my credibility and blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Do you get this whole dialogue going on? Which, of course, I'm also human and all of us are yeah. human. And that's, you know, the reason that I, I can do well with um, some of the things helping people through stuff is because I've had to struggle with some of that stuff, too. And it's yeah. so it's all right to let that, those things out. And, and so I think, you know, just setting an intention, maybe now it's the new year. So setting an intention of I'm going to meet more strangers or talk to more strangers out there. And I'm going to work at strengthening my friendships. Um, I, I think that's a really good way to go. And I think also practicing reaching out because I know that's been something I've struggled with myself. Um, yeah, I just. It's interesting. I. I don't really know what more to say about it. Yeah, and I think with the practicing reaching out, because I was always very um, shy growing up, and I'm still more introverted, but I'm, I've gotten real comfortable in front of groups and you know talking to strangers and all that. And part of it for me, it's the curiosity that you mentioned, but then also a sense of play. So even yeah. when I would when I would try with people, a total stranger at doing the positive introduction, asking them to tell me about a time they're their best, Sometimes it's wonder they love it, yeah. and other times there it's an uncomfortable laughter, and they kind of dodge the question. 
but it's still like, all right, let's just play with it and see where yeah. where it goes. Not every one of these salvos is going to work. Um, and, and that's one of the things I pulled out of positive psychology many years ago was the idea of playfulness, the idea of being quick and easy to smile and laugh. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we all have that resting bitch face, pardon the, that's kind of what <laughs> you call it, I guess. But um, when you're just, when your face is just relaxed, it's pretty easy to interpret most men's faces as mildly annoyed or, you know, a little bit negative. And so I think one of the things to practice doing is to put the slightest smile that you can on the corners of your lips as you're walking around and see what kind of different response you get. Um, and, you know, you can do more than that, but sure. I think it's, it's these little tweaks to our daily way of being that really have some profound payoffs. Yeah. Yeah. You, I'm sure you see it more directly than I do, but I, it, my sense is a lot of people are really struggling with this stuff. Um, yeah. Well, especially since COVID, COVID just crushed us. Yeah, I think with that, because my understanding is the kind of the numbers of loneliness and depression were rising anyway before yeah. COVID. And then when the rules change that now you're no longer going in the office and seeing people every day and just sitting at home on Zoom, um, now the 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 only interactions you had are, are gone. And so I think that really um, was really, really crushing for so many people. Um, and I mean, the, what a, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to add real quick. I mean, the technology is great. I mean, you and I were on other ends of the country right now. We're able to, yeah. to have this connection because of, because of the technology, but it's, you know, if I, if I needed physical help with something in the middle of the night, you're not the one I'm going to call. <laughs> you know? Or if I need a hug. I mean, physical yeah, touch right. is important. That's right. And I, I, one of the things I've realized is that it feel, it, it's, again, another positive emotional boost when I get a hug from a male friend. Um, and yeah. Um, so I, I think that I've heard from a lot of clients since COVID that quote, I'm out of practice in being social. And I've, had a, I've also had a lot of conversations around small talk um, and the importance of small talk because I can't tell you how many people I've met that are like, I freaking hate small talk. Like, I don't even see the point of it. It's a waste of time, blah, 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 blah. And I get that. I've been there. I mean, I've, sure. I've had that attitude and it did not serve me. And I think I had to realize that small talk is important. And the purpose is that it serves is it's a safe way for people to connect initially. And, and some people can only do small talk, you know, yeah. like really extroverted people. And that's okay too. But I think to look at small talk as a skill to practice because it's a way for you to put the other person at ease and make them feel safe and comfortable so that you have a shot at creating a deeper, longer relationship. And I do think that we've got some power with the over the small talk to to keep it from going to just the, you know, how you doing, what, you know, what do you yeah. what do you do? And flipping it to, you know, hey, you you look really excited when we talked about that. Tell me more. I mean, right. that it's you were still at a small talk level. I'm not telling you my deepest, darkest fears or anxieties. But but it's it's building the relationship. It's it's um, increasing the positive emotion in both of us, and it's very it's it's a lot more fun. I mean, it's yeah. just because I do. I hate small talk, but when we can get talking about stuff like that, that's exciting for me. Well, I like having the goal of creating a positive emotional connection with others, because when I achieve that, as I said, we both win. And I think if everyone did that. This world would be a much better place. Yeah. And I agree that, you know, to your observation, I think that part of this is cultivating greater awareness about what other people are feeling so that you can spot things like, wow, Sean, I see that your eyes really lit up when you started talking about your book on poetry. Tell me more about that. So you kind of steer the conversation in a positive emotional direction. Yeah. And I don't think you can lose that way. Right. 
And it's really powerful. And, you know, if, if you're really self interested or, you know, self-absorbed, I guess, you know, you can't always justify it as, well, I get a positive emotional boost as well. Um, because I, I really think you both win uh, yeah. because you both walk away feeling a little bit heartened. Um, and I think um, it gets easier once you, once you do it, once you've yeah. done it a few times, you start seeing, huh, what was it? What was different about this conversation with this person than these other ones over here? And once you recognize that it, it's it's easy to kind of cut through just the the low level small talk, I guess, or, or whatever how we want to frame it. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember I was at Safeway, which is our supermarket out here, and there was a checker. He was probably I don't know late fifties, sixty, and I you know said hello and how's your day going and and then I noticed he had a BMW something like a keychain or something on the on the counter. And I said, Oh, are you into BMWs? And this dude lit up and he was like, well, yeah, actually I'm into classic BMWs. I was like, Oh yeah, what do you got? And he went into this full on like explanation of the classic BMW that he has. And it was fun to listen to because he was so enthusiastic about it. And I got the feeling he was never enthusiastic at work or rarely. And, you know, I, I said, thanks for sharing. I, I appreciate it. Like, you know, have a great day. And I walked away feeling fantastic. And so it doesn't have to be deep or meaningful necessarily. It's just right. that curiosity about what lights this person up. Yeah. And that's, um, uh, that makes me, so, so usually when I think about these things, I've been thinking about trying to find that common connection, mm-hmm. um, which those are great. But in that instance, I, I know nothing about classic BMWs. So it's, but if, if I saw the person getting really excited about it, that would, that would feel good to me. And that would make the whole interaction better. Yeah. And so I think you could, I think you could go with shared interest. I think you can also go with an appreciation of their passion. Yeah. Okay. And, and let me tell you another one. I remember I had a, a client who was, I think I met him when he was 16 and he was a kid that in high school would tell teachers to their face, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of where he was at when I met him. Uh, he was a little rebellious, a little oppositional, and I really liked him. Like he was a good kid. And so I started working with him and eventually he went into the Navy and he's doing fantastic now. But when he was like 17 and a half or so, he got a job at a supermarket and he was a check uh, bagger. And he came in one week and he said, you know, like, do you have any tips on what I can do to make my job less miserable? Because the the checker that I'm normally working with is like 45, single divorced mother, bitter as hell, very pessimistic, and just complains about everything. And she makes my life a living hell. And I was like, well, here's my thought. You're not going to do a thing about her. You're not going to change her psychological profile. But here's what I can tell you is you have a high degree of social intelligence. That's one of your strengths. Put that to use with every customer that comes through your line. And tell yourself you're really curious. Tell yourself you're just trying to make a connection. Tell yourself that you want to make your interaction with each customer the best interaction they have that day. Now, you're not always going to succeed at that. Some people will be depressed, some will be irritable or bitchy or you know, whatever. But the ones that you do succeed in creating a connection with will fill you up and make you happy and reaffirm your belief in the positiveness of humanity, positivity of humanity. And so he started doing this and he got really good at it. And I don't know if I would say he loved his job after that, but he really liked it after that. It changed his whole framework. We, uh, my son was a, um, was his first job. He was a bagger in the local grocery store and he's, he's a off the charts, extrovert, very charismatic. Your so son? he would, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, Funny how that works. He would, um, he would, um, 
have these big interactions with all the customers, all of our neighbors would come and share stories with us. And we'd be in the store and I would see people get in his line to interact with him. I mean, and so here's a bagger in the store. I mean, he's not in that role. He was not uh, changing the world because of the substance of his job, but he was... um, it really making it, it made it fun for him. It made it fun for the people around him, yeah. And started to build relationships with it too. It wasn't just a one-time transaction. So yeah, yeah. And and this young man, I remember he would meet. He would he, like he really liked helping elderly people in the grocery store, whether it was helping them find something or helping them reach something or helping them with, you know, uh, taking groceries out to the car. And he would get such wonderful feedback and appreciation from them. And and I think this this is one of the things that kind of started softening him a little bit, because um, he's really a great young man. I'm not sure public school was you know the best fit for him, but you know that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's okay. Hmm. So I'm aware of time, and we got to wrap up now. So any parting thoughts? Any anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, this is um, this has exceeded my my hopes and expectations. Um, the the listeners won't know this piece of it. That um, when I reached out, I just wanted to brainstorm with you. And then last night, <laughs> you sent me the sent me a note saying, "All right, we're ready to record tomorrow." It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I don't <laughs> I don't have some grand unified theory pulled together. But this, um, you know, I just had a bunch of disjointed thoughts. But this really helps solidify a lot of things I was thinking. You gave me some new insights. This was extremely valuable. I, I very much, and I had fun with it too. Just oh, always. Uh, yeah, no. Um, this has been great. And I, I always value your time and and wisdom. Um, and I, yeah, I always value your odd <laughs> set of skills and experiences. <laughs> you just don't meet too many people that are a lawyer because most are pessimistic. With combined with positive psychology, <laughs> well, I figure I need to use the other half of my brain. So smart, very smart, <laughs> wise. All right, so um, so I guess that's it, huh? You're yep, okay. That, that was great. Um, Thank you, John. You bet. Always my always a pleasure to have you on. And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman. If you love this episode, please feel free to share with all your male friends. Be sure to like, rate, and review. And if you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. Until next time, this is Dr. John. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 